you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, this week, George Cedarquist goes inside the huddle with Scott Stroman, artistic director of Highbury Opera Theater and composer of Fever Pitch, the football opera. And by football, of course, we mean soccer. And then it's the return of Monday Evening Quarterback, where George reviews Covent Garden's Cosi Fantute and Alcina at Glyndebourne. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Rene Papa is either a fully functioning alcoholic or a homophobe, or possibly both. Stay tuned as we wade through this PR nightmare. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. What a deal. Oliver Camacho, how's it hanging? Well, we took last week off uh, not only to celebrate the independence of our great nation, or but also, <laughs> but also <laughs> because uh, it was right in the middle of Wimbledon and I'm trying to get back on a regular sleep schedule. Um, it was a very uh, exciting second week that ended the way we expected. And Novak Djokovic comes away with his 21st Grand Slam, but we had a surprise finalist with Nick Kyrgios who created all sorts of scandals along the way. Uh, he got into the final because Rafael Nadal pulled out of the semis with a uh, abdomen tear, like an abdomen <sighs> muscle tear. Not the abdomen. I know. Yeah, I know. Brutal. Uh, but one of the many scandals that he was a part of was how he received his runners-up plate it's i forget what they call it but it's like a really nice plate um and uh he are we put, talking like like a dinner dish is, is what we're talking about what are we talking about here it's like a plate it's a plate of pad thai steaming you know oh, delicious <laughs> oh it sounds so nice <laughs> yeah um he uh broke the code of wearing all white on the court by putting on a red i would assume nike cap uh, when he received his award from the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton. I assume there were audible gasps. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, this is a real conversation about, like, Wimbledon is so special. One of the reasons why it's so special is because of all of the traditions at Wimbledon. And in a way, the conservatism of Wimbledon is also representative of the conservatism in classical music. And I don't want to see Wimbledon become like other tournaments where it's everything goes out the window. But I also understand why we need these disruptors uh, in, you know, in both tennis and in classical mm -hmm. music. So I'm of two minds about it. Um, I don't always like the way he behaves on court, but putting on a red cap to receive his second prize award, you know what? There are other things happening in the world right now that are more important to talk about. <laughs> I certainly can't think of that. <laughs> Matt Cummings, uh, what what would you wear to uh, when you're receiving your plate of pod thai for winning Wimbledon? Well, I mean, I would have the decorum to keep tr to tradition. <laughs> I would not. But do wait, 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 wait. Do they make white clothes in your size? In my size? 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely not. You have to get it like you have to like buy like a sail from a sailboat and kind of like t- wrap it around me like a toga. That's that's the way to go. Uh, we have a special report from George all the way in England. Um, while George was gone, of course, the government completely collapsed. But he's he's he managed to talk about uh, uh, quite a few things of interest other than the collapse. I assume I cannot emphasize enough. We're pretty sure it wasn't his fault. <laughs> We're pretty sure. We we don't have any definitive proof that he was involved, but uh, have you ever seen uh, George Sutterquist and James Bond in the same room? I rest my case. Take it away, George. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Scott Stroman is a professor of jazz at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, the artistic director of Highbury Opera Theatre in North London, and is director of music at the American International Church in London. His numerous compositions include the football-themed opera Fever Pitch, based on the Nick Hornby book of the same title, and an opera based on the play The Weekend by Michael Palin of Monty Python fame. I sat down with him on Independence Day at the Guildhall School to find out how exactly he got to the UK from the US. It's always strange to be in a foreign country on Independence Day, yeah. and it's especially odd to be in England on, <laughs> yes. on Independence Day. <laughs> Independence from England, yeah, no, from Britain. <laughs> Scott, how did you get to the UK in the first place? You originally are from Indiana. I'm from Indiana. I did an undergraduate degree at Northern Illinois University, where I went primarily because they had a great jazz band at the time so we had a great I had a wonderful time there toured with Dizzy Gillespie and Louis Belson and many other people and from there I went to Miami University of Miami where I did a master's in studio writing and production with the intent of heading toward writing film scores um, while I was there I played in lots of Latin bands as well as worked a lot in classical music. I've always been I've always been half and half I suppose or I think of it as all one thing but involved in both jazz and classical music right from the time I was a little kid and I just want to add to that Chicago connection. We're big White Sox fans. Oh dear! So I'm afraid, yeah. We're we're my my grandfather was a was a heavy duty White Sox fan. The White Sox were on the radio every night. Whereas my wife, my wife, her dad was a Cubs fan, so he was listening <laughs> to the Cubs. My granddad was listening to the White Sox, and that that rubbed off onto my dad and onto me, and onto my son, who now is a the, he would love to go and play for the White Sox. He's wow, a, he's the baseball player. He's playing over here now. Um, you probably would not recognize Wrigleyville or Wrigley Field at this point. Although, when was the last time you were back in the U.S.? Oh, I've been. Well, we go back every year, okay. and we always go and watch at least one baseball game. Oh, if nice. not too. So, I've, yeah, I've seen. I've seen the. I haven't been to the state. Yes, I have. I've been to the stadium once since it uh, was. Okay. What do you want to call it? Renovated, updated, made more posh. So, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. don't you don't want to drive to Wrigley, basically. <laughs> It's beautiful. I have to say it's beautiful, but, you know, you can't beat Comiskey. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, you've played with the likes of Billy Cobham, yeah. Randy Brecker, mm-hmm. and I cannot believe that I'm not going to talk about any of those people with you now. We want to talk about opera. Okay. So, you have at least two operas that mm-hmm. I know of, Fever Pitch yeah. and The Weekend. Talk to me about how you created those two pieces, what the differences were between those? Well, you know, I, 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 direct, I direct the London Jazz Orchestra, and I have a choir called Eclectic Voices, a really, very nice amateur choir, which is now just past its 30th, 30th anniversary, too. Very ambitious choir like that. Plus, I do lots of other vocal ensembles, like where we are, the, the Guildhall School and so forth. 
So I've written lots and lots of vocal music, lots of choral music. <laughs> and a lot of times it's been written for amateurs, sometimes for children and all that, as well as professionals. And I found that I learned so much about composition by writing stuff that has to be practical and that people have to get engaged in and perform well. So things which I thought as a composer were essential to my music, I've learned very often aren't essential to my music and that the heart of the music is something which can be grasped relatively quickly and then embellished, if you like, something around that. So I've always had it, what I'm getting at is I've always had a kind of dramatic narrative view about all my music, whether it's classical or jazz, however you want to, I, I have to stop talking about these categories because I can't really categorize it anymore. And one of the projects was something called Ringa. And uh, this, this Ringa ensemble was an ensemble of about 15 very bold players from the orchestra who were crossing into other boundaries of music. They were, they were trying to expand their horizon, really. So we were working with African musicians, Indian musicians, South American musicians, jazz musicians, children, all kinds of things that orchestral musicians often don't get to do. This is a really clever, ambitious project to try to tease out new ideas for orchestral music, um, to also, what, what we found, of course, is that players in the orchestra had all these hidden talents, which were uh, you know, not often shown in the second violin section of a symphony orchestra, but you had people who were actually great folk players or jazz musicians or had been in rock bands or knew something about, you know, had lived in India, who knows? There's all these things which we tease out. So this was crossing boundaries, and th that was all brought on by the by the director of the, the, um, the, the, um, you know, the chief officer of the orchestra at the time, Serge Dorney. Um, started a whole bunch of projects. Well, Serge then moved off to France, and he's invited me to do lots of work in France, and one of the things was to conduct some Kurt Weill stage works, both operas and musicals with the opera company, with Opera de Lyon. So this is, this is my whole story, and this eventually led to me starting my own company in London, which is Highbury Opera Theatre, and the works that you mentioned came with that. That is how we get to Highbury Opera Theatre, right? Highbury, one of the neighborhoods in North London. Yes, in North London. Yeah. Exactly. So we've heard a bit about of the genesis of that. And so Fever Pitch was written specifically for the company. It was. So Hybrid Opera Theatre grew out of the, this choir, Collective Voices, and we had a youth choir, well, two youth choirs, um, Hybrid Young Singers, and so we had a lot of people around, and there was some interest in doing a production of, of uh, Noah's Flood, which I'd done before. So we did, a, we did a kind of a big production of Noah's Flood, and uh, that was great. It was fun, and it really, it, there's a lot of interest, and, and the, you know, people like being on stage. And so out of that, sort of decided to turn, use this as the seed of a new opera company. And yes, we started Highbury Opera Theatre. And um, in, that, in that company, we've now done, I think, nine works we're up to now. I came to this, uh, we were looking for something to do. And I just threw this crazy idea out because I, I'm very keen that our, that our company has some kind of local relevance. And that we happen to live in the neighborhood of the Arsenal football ground, of course. And also that um, Nick Hornby is a, he lives here, you know, he's nearby, his kids go to school, you know, so, so I said, I'd read Fever Pitch, and I said, well, I got this idea about maybe doing something with Fever Pitch, and man, everybody just jumped on it, I thought they would say, what a stupid idea, that's, it's not a, that's not even a, it's not a play, it's not a story, it's a, you know, football, what is football, they just loved it, and so, the, so the company commissioned Fever Pitch, and I wrote it with this wonderful librettist, uh, Tamson Collison, and it was just a huge success. It 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 uh, it's worked out really well. And my 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 own I, when I st when I started to write it, I just honestly didn't have any idea what the language would be, the musical language. I was listening to lots. Of, I was thinking. I didn't you know because I sometimes write serial music. You know, I mean, lots of jazz, 
neoclassical. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm this sort of composite of all kinds of stuff. Um, and to be honest, what sparked it off was was her libretto, which was amazing. And in peppered through the libretto, with reluctance at first, we decided to use terrace chants um, in a way that you might use. I don't know, corrals or something. I mean, you know I mean? The terraces are kind of the bleacher bums exactly. of the football stadium. Yes, and in football, in football here in Britain, they, there are songs which, every, which are related to every team, and you hear these little chants all the way around. Um, there's, there's about a dozen of them which are, everybody knows and starts singing them in, during the match. <clears throat> and some of them are nice and some of them aren't very nice. Um, but... Um, but I, I thought oh, I don't want to. I don't want to cheapen it by using these. Chan-. In fact, it turned out to be a wonderful thing to do because you could use those as a sort of a cantus firmus under things and bring in. If you were in a dramatic scene, for example, that had nothing to do with football, and all of a sudden you brought out a theme that you recognize from the terrace, it would immediately. It's like another character walking on the stage. So I wrote this piece, and and the idea was to. Well, it was perfectly laid out for it because it had a, it had a small team of professionals. That's how we always work here. Five professional singers at the center of it, the main characters. But it also followed the life of this guy, the, our main character, um, which we called Gunner. That's the, they're, they're the gunners. High, you know, Arsenal are the gunners. And at one point they became, when they got a bit rough, they started being called Gunners. So this guy is called Gunner and talks about him getting infatuated with, with football from a very young age, and basically being disappointed for the rest of his life. That that's that's the world of the White Sox fan, right? You know, the Cubs, the Cubs up until both. We all we know about this coming from. Chicago. I mean, I could I could smell this story. You know, every year this is the year for the White. This is the year. Of, no, oh no, oh not again. You know, that's the arsenal for you. So, so this tracks this guy's life through from being a young child to adulthood, and that's perfect because that means you can have scenes with kids from local schools who are involved, and you, you want normal kids, you know. And then kid, and then he's in kind of secondary school, high school age, and then he's an adult, and you know, and he goes through his love life and everything. It's all related to the ups and downs of the football team. That that's essentially what it, what the what the story is is that his life tracks up and down with the success or failure of of, of the of the Arsenal Football Club. Now that makes that that the great thing about that is it gives it a universal appeal. It's not just for football fans. It's not even about football. It's about obsession and about, you know, what things how we kind of avoid the realities of our life and we we replace them with some kind of false other thing. It happens to be football for for a lot of people and for this character, but it might be anything else, right, that you have in life. Anyway, it was a brilliant libretto. The music came out great and it suited me down to the ground because I I could wind these terrace chants and these things into my language however I wanted to. So some of it's very jazzy. Some of it's pretty strict. You know, it's, I don't know what you call it, but it's, it's, it's it gets some, it gets dark sometimes, you know. And so um, the end result was, was a big success and it involved nearly a hundred people on stage and we used a band of 11 people and um, we have a great local venue. Uh, uh, Union Chapel is a big old they call it non-conformist chapel here. It was actually built for music back at the end of the nineteenth um, century, and it's a nice open space and it has quite a big space in the front. So it's it's a chapel, but it's it works pretty well as a dramatic venue, drama venue. They have lights and sound and everything, and it's almost walking distance from the from the the Arsenal Stadium. So interesting. I never thought of this thing, but it was just stupid to think about. But 
all the reviews mentioned how this, how the Arsenal Stadium was like the new cathedral, you know, the cathedral of football. And here we are kind of in the cathedral of the, it just worked great as it kind of brought an extra, you know, you as a director would appreciate that. You know, you look at this place, you say, oh, I've got another character here and I don't even have to hire them. <laughs> you know, they're, they're already here, a beautiful venue. You're always thinking about the issues of what life is about. So that was, that was, that was Fever Pitch. You do as a director or creator, you want the piece to fire on multiple levels, right? Absolutely. Text, music, community, Perfect. venue. Yeah. The weekend was also an adaptation of a Michael Palin That's book. Right. But this happened in 2021, right? So now we're in well, then we the hit pandemic. Pan that's right. We hit pandemic time. So on the, the back of the the back of, of one thing about doing a, a piece of such size, uh, which you would imagine, financially it actually worked out quite well doing doing Fever Pitch. You know, we raised some money as we all do with these little companies from from the Arts Council, from donors, from here, and then we get pretty good ticket sales. So we actually erased about four or five years of debt on that one show, which is a pretty amazing thing to do with a new piece of music. Um, but it was it was a big task. All those people, all these, also we had workshops. We had more than 1,500 kids come and see special school performances. So we're on a pretty big scale here. The venue holds 600 people. Um, and and <laughs> whenever you have lots of people involved, you have lots of conversations with lots of people, you know. So so it was pretty exhausting to do. And it, and it and, um, took all of our efforts to pull it off. After that, we had this little gap where we were trying to reassess our next two or three years. And then bang, the pandemic came in the middle of that. In the meantime, I had... Um, been reading Michael Palin's diaries. I, I like to read diaries of people, and, and I'm and I'm I'm really like a lot of people interested in Monty Python a lot. But I but particularly Michael. He's 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 got a lot more going on than just Monty Python. He's a really good writer, and a and a and a very observant person. And he lives again bike ride from my house. He lives here in North London, and he's a very. I also knew him as a very community minded spirit. So, Tamson, my librettist, had happened who had worked with him on an audiobook of his diaries. She, she, that's one of the things she does in addition to writing. She also directs for radio and, um, and audiobooks. So she had, she had met Michael and found him very amenable. And between the two of us, we contacted him and told him, I, I told her I had this idea about the weekend. And I, I'd, I'd read Michael's, basically I'd read Michael's diaries. And then as a result of that, I'd read a lot of other things that he'd written, including this play, which was, kind of lost really it was it was it was produced in the early 90s and kind of semi-successful and kind of disappeared into the ether a bit but I read it and I and I just sensed that there was more life in this piece um and I started to get in my head I could imagine the flow of and and the sort of set piece that it needed at the end as an opera and so forth so anyway uh, we approached Michael Michael came to see the fever pitch and he really liked it and he said this is great he said, I don't know. He said, I have no idea why you want to turn my play into an opera. I can't imagine it. But if you think you can do it, you have my blessing. Go ahead. So we set off to do it. And then over the next couple of years, it turned out to be, I thought it was going to be six months. But again, pandemic hit and everything. Over the next couple of years, we formed this together into this uh, basically 80, 85 minute one act opera uh, based on his play. And um, I... For lots of reasons, I wanted to have a chorus involved. I mean, for one thing, the company, the, the purpose of the company is always to work between amateurs and professionals. So even though this play didn't involve children, I wanted to have an amateur chorus and it worked perfectly for this this particular 
story because it, in, it, it peaks out at a dinner party or we turn it into a big cocktail party and you need lots of participants at the cocktail. That's, that's, our, that's our La Boheme moment, you know, when everybody's there and it's all going crazy and then basically all hell breaks loose. So, <clears throat> so we added a chorus in and then additionally made that chorus into a Greek chorus for the rest of it who argue back and forth or become the kind of the, the um, well, the, the, the conscience of the lead character. So the, the lead character who's, who's really conflicted all the way through here. It's very funny, but he's also very conflicted all the way through. And he has this kind of constant discussion, argument with the chorus, who are his, you know, his two sides of his, his brain, really. So, that's, so we ended up with a piece which we had 22 people on stage in the chorus, and then these five main characters and, a, and a, again, a kind of a little orchestra of, of 10 people. Um, and that's how it was constructed, professional orchestra, professional leads, amateur chorus, and they took some minor roles. Finally, we managed to produce that in, uh, in a Bloomsbury Theatre, which is at the University of London here last, last September. But it was, a, it was a struggle, and keeping it going, we'd, we'd started into the beginnings of it. I always workshop these things and write a little bit, try a little bit on, and then add a bit more, you know. Um, that became very difficult during the, during the pandemic. But we did manage halfway through the pandemic when we had a little gap to get the whole chorus together, to get them to memorize their parts, and then to do a concert video recording. And that was that turned out to be essential because that was, that was eight months before we finally did the production, and that meant we had a fully formed, at least first draft, that everybody had even memorized their parts before we started to put it on stage. Also gave me a little bit of time to improve the ending, which turned out to be essential. So that's the basic thing. Now, M Michael's part in this was, was really critical. First of all, he gave his agreement to us and he said, I don't care what you do with it. You know, he said, I'd love to, I'd like to read what you've done, but I don't want to, you know, I'll, I'll contribute some ideas, but I don't want to have any art. I don't care about it. He said, this piece didn't quite ever do what I thought it would do. See what you can do with it. And we came back with a new take on it, especially with this chorus thing. He absolutely loved it. He got really behind it. He came to rehearsals. He read the script. He made some suggestions. He helped. He, he actually unlocked a new idea for the ending, which set us off. We, were, we were, After that first recording, we knew we had a good piece, but we knew the ending was still not quite right. I just, I knew it wasn't right. It just wasn't, you know, these pieces are harder to finish than to start. And he, he just, in a couple of comments at a coffee at his house, he just nailed it. And I just thought, of course, bang, went off and wrote the ending. So he was essential, and he's still essential because we now want to see it, you know, have some legs around the world. And Michael's support is obviously critical, but it's genuine. You know, we both of these guys with Nick Hornby and with Michael. There was no, we weren't trying to attach ourselves to star names. It was really me thinking, here's some people who are really well known for one thing, but actually, there's some other part of them which I think needs illuminating, and they probably will be interested in that. And that's exactly what's happened. You know, if you have a favorite piece which has not a baby, you know, which somehow didn't quite do what you thought it do, sometimes it's nice for someone else to come in and say, let me help you with your baby a little. Maybe I can get inspiration from your thing and help it to grow into a fully formed thing. So, you know, here we are, hopefully, into the next normal. Um, you're a creator. You're a teacher. What What is the future look like in terms of your teaching, in terms of your composition as we come out of this pandemic? Has, has anything changed fundamentally for you? 
Well, I've gotten older, you know. I mean, <laughs> a few years have gone by while this stuff is going on, you know. It does make you reassess, and especially when you get up to a kind of certain age, you start to think about what's the best use of your resources. Uh, I've spent my whole life as a kind of scattergun effect, you know, zooming from this to that, playing jazz and writing opera and conducting orchestras and doing lots of working with children and kids and stuff. And um, the main thing I need to do right now for myself is to pull a lot of this stuff together. I have a lot of a lot of pieces I've written. I haven't published very much of it because I'm always on to the next thing. And um, so I want to get those things, like I mentioned about, I have some pieces now I feel very proud about. I feel, I feel that they're finished. You know, composers very often think it still needs another edit, needs another run through, it's not quite right, you know, and I've often been like that. And luckily I get the chance to revisit lots of the music that I've done in the past, and every time I do, I think I improve it a bit. But I have some pieces now, and especially these stage works, which I think f should be being performed in other places, with me directing them or not. Mo mostly, most of the music I've written, I've directed, and I've been part of the package. But I'm also aware as a composer that you need to pr provide... Um, something that other people can do without you being standing there, you know. And so I've tried to get better and better, better at that. So uh, I suppose that's the main thing I want to do. I want to. I, I now have, after the huge effort of putting on these two shows, and they have been huge for different reasons. I mean, you know, working through that pandemic and rehearsing over Zoom and trying to get venues to get people on the phone. I mean, it's impossible. It took. And, and again, you're in touch with every single person. You've got to assure, ensure they're safe. You know, do I really want to be in this because how many meters am I going to be away from the next singer? How's the ventilation in the room? Do we have the right, you know, have we had the okays? Is the insurance, you know, it's just a lot of stuff goes on. when It, it gets more complicated and during the pandemic it's become twice as much. So that stuff has kind of been, been, you know, demanding. But now that we're through that, we've got a product that I'm really proud of. I'm kind of ready to start another show and think about another show. Um, at the same time, I'm, I, I have to be, I have to really do I have to get a lot of the music that I've written out there, and that's what's really next for me. What What's the dream idea for the next opera for oh, you? <laughs> I, ha I have one. I, ha I actually have. I don't think I, I can't tell you what okay, it is. Okay, that's fine. I, I can't let the, the cat out of the bag. <laughs> First of all, it's a big one. Does it have anything to do with sports? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. No, this, this, I, I've had lots of sports thoughts, but, uh, but I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't even looking for sports when I came up with, with, uh, even though I'm a big Arsenal fan, I'm actually a season ticket holder at the Arsenal. I didn't hardly get to go that year because I was writing this damn opera all the time and watching that, watching on a Saturday afternoon, I'd be there trying to finish the thing and then watching them get beat in the corner, which I think kind of contributed to the vibe of the piece, to be honest. Oh no, I can't play that. Oh no. And then the minor chord comes in, you know? Um, no, it's not 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 to do with sports. This is to do with much. <laughs> I can't I can't tell you, but but it's a it's a it's a big one, and and it may not be appropriate for hybrid opera theater. It might be. I think it's appropriate for something much bigger. So we will we will see. Scott, thank you so much for hanging out. Pass or fail. Here's Monday evening quarterback. At the end of June, I went to the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden to see a production of Così Fan Tutte. And this is the production directed by Jan-Philippe Gloger, conducted by Julia Jones, the cast including a whole roster of great singers. Um, the women, I think, really stuck out in this production. Jennifer Davis as Fjordaligi, 
Serena Gambaroni as Despina and uh, Julie Bullian as Dora Bella. Here's the thing about this particular production, which is closed now at Covent Garden, and, and this lands entirely on Jan-Philippe Gloger's shoulders. Too many ideas. This happens a lot, in my opinion, with European directors, where there's simply too many ideas thrown at the stage. So here we had, in the overture, a dumb show of performers dressed in the 18th century taking a curtain call as if they had just finished a performance of Così Fan Tutte. The next thing we know is that characters are jumping over the edge of the stage from the audience and kind of breaking the fourth wall and becoming part of this production. Over the next three and a half hours, we are dealing with a visual landscape of the 18th century and all the stage practices that go along with that, you know, front lighting and drops and stage mechanics. But also we're seeing all the backside of that. We're seeing contemporary stagehands moving all the bits and pieces of the stage around. Why? I have no idea. This is the problem with European, continental European directors, is that they have so many ideas, all of which they're throwing at the stage and just seeing what sticks. They're just seeing what lands. This is a problematic piece too. And for me, the heart of the problem is that I cannot believe that Fiordaligi and Dorabella don't know what's going on the whole time. I don't think you can stage this opera without acknowledging and making something of this idea. Do we really think that those two very, very bright women don't know what's going on. I don't think you can do that. And I think that's the beauty of De Ponte's libretto, is that he knows those two women have smelled a rat from the very beginning, and they have decided to play along with this in order to teach these men a lesson. And to uh, Jan-Philippe Gloger's credit, that is a moment which he does get right. The final image of the opera is a flying drop that comes in which spells out così fan tutti and t-u-t-t-i so notice that the final image that we see in this production is not just saying all women are like that but everybody is like that and that gesture alone i think saves this production great playing from the Royal Opera House Orchestra under the baton of Julia Jones. Definitely the opera highlight, although not my good call of the trip, which I'll get to in a second, was going to the Glyndebourne Festival. Glyndebourne, a country house estate uh, in the south of England towards the coast, and is the granddaddy of them all. We could do a whole other show on defining what English uh, country house opera is in the summertime. I don't think it's something we really have in the U.S., despite the great number of opera festivals that we have in our country in the summer. But Glyndebourne is definitely the first, and although not the only, not by a long shot, is really the festival to which all other festivals are compared. It started, I believe, in the 40s using the many 
buildings of the estate to house singers, to rehearse, to build sets. And I think it actually started with some rather humble beginnings. Not the case today. Of course, Glyndebourne now has become part of the English summer season, along with, you know, the horse races at Ascot and Henley Royal Regatta. And this is one of those things that you want to do. I was lucky enough to get to go with a friend to Glyndebourne and uh, see a production of Handel's Alcina, which I'll get to in a second. So you, there you are. Go to Glyndebourne, picnic ready for the long intermission of 90 minutes to give you plenty of time to eat between acts one and two, or the first half and the second half of the opera. Black tie, definitely what to wear. I did not have that. I had a great outfit. But as I said to my friend before we went, look, um, I, I don't have black tie. I do have a, a, a great suit, uh, I, but I hope that's going to be okay. And he said to me, well, you know, typically I do wear a black tie. He's a regular at Glyndebourne. I do wear a black tie, but, uh, you know, just for you, I'll go off-piste, which was very generous of him. Definitely, I was the youngest person there, which, if you know how old I am, I think it says something about Glyndebourne. And I'm going to get to the political fallout in a second. First of all, let's go to the show. Again, Handel's Alcina, featuring great arias, including Tordemi a Vagejar and Verdi Prati, probably the two big numbers of the show. This production, which was directed by... Francesco Michele and conducted by Jonathan Cohen with the Orchestra of the Age of the Enlightenment was a new production uh, for this season and the first ever time that Alcina has been done at Glyndebourne. Again, there's a real similarity, I think, between this production of Alcina and the production of Così fan tu that I saw at Covent Garden. Again, so many ideas, right? This is a production sort of set in the swinging 60s, I suppose, with Alcina's Island being a nightclub with sort of brutalist projections of brutalist architecture in the background, contrasted with the glitz and glamour of showgirls and gold lame and sequins and sparkles. So many ideas thrown at this stage. Some of them stick, some of them do not. Uh, Beth Taylor sang Bradamante with an absolutely powerful voice, which was just so dark and, and colorful. I also got to see Samantha Hankey as Ruggiero, who was absolutely marvelous. She's such a great actor and hoping to get her on the show as well. Dance, of course, is a big part of the works of Handel. And this is a moment where actually the um, Francesco Michelli production really worked well. With a whole uh, block of dancers, probably eight total, using showgirl style and showgirl costumes. At one point, they were all dressed like peacocks with these long skirts, which bridged beautifully the idea of Alcina's power of turning the inhabitants of her island into animals and linking that up with a kind of Vegas showgirl style. And having all of that happen with some of Handel's great dance music was arresting 
and surprising. This production did not cause political fallout, but the overall arching idea of Glyndebourne did. Super simply, towards the middle of June, Dominic Robb, who is a prominent politician in the Conservative Party, attacked a politician, Angela Rayner, from the Labour Party, so the opposition, essentially, and said, you are a champagne communist. That is Dominic Robb, conservative, talking to Angela Rayner of the Labour Party. You are a champagne communist by going to Glyndebourne. You think that is the Labour Party, you stand for the people, and there you are going to Glyndebourne. Well, it was a completely low shot, which made absolutely no sense. First of all, Angela Rayner's ticket to Glyndebourne was 60 pounds, which is a fraction of what it would cost to go to a premiership soccer match or to see a major pop star in London. The irony, of course, that Angela Rayner was at a production at Glyndebourne seeing The Marriage of Figaro, in which a woman of lower class ultimately succeeds in beating her upper class boss, was lost on precisely no one. That irony was lost on nobody at all. And gratefully, Angela Rayner managed to put Dominic Robb in his place. The, the condescendingness of the man made most people's skin crawl, I would say. At the end of the day, Glenborn really is about the entire experience. Not just what's happening offstage, but what's happening on stage and what's happening in the gardens as well. You're there for the entire experience. It is so memorable. It is a rarity to be able to go, and I can tell you, I will be back. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opperland this week. The backlash was swift after Renee Papa made homophobic and transphobic comments on Facebook. The comments opposing the Met Opera Course's participation in the New York City Pride Parade have since been deleted, and Papa has apologized to the LGBTQ community, alluding to his struggles with alcoholism. Papa was roundly criticized by members of the Met Opera Chorus, a number of his well-known colleagues, and was officially condemned by the Berlin State Opera. In an interview with Van Magazine, Peter Gelb reiterated his opposition to Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine and said that he stands by the Met's decision to deplatform Anna Netrebko. Said Gelb, quote, there's a difference between working with institutions in a country with questionable morals and working with institutions in a country trying to wipe out a people. You may disagree, but for me, a red line has been crossed. Francesca Pia Vitale and Carles Pachon have won the top prize of the 2022 Neue Stimmen International Singing Competition. Ms. Vitale, a 26-year-old Italian soprano, presented the Lament Amiocor from Alcina and Elvira's Mad Scene from Ipuritani, while Pachon, a baritone from Spain and also age 26, offered Largo a Factotum and O du mein Holder Abendstern from Tannhäuser. Both singers received 15,000 euros and Vitale also won the Audience Award. Freelance Artist Relief Australia, founded by Nicole Carr to provide pandemic relief to artists, has become the Nicole Carr Award. The new award will be distributed as a prize for an Australian singing competition and includes travel and accommodations to Paris for a period of intensive 
mentoring with the Australian soprano Nicole Carr while she drinks expensive champagne. <laughs> Chicago-based Sadi Records has partnered with friends of the show Haymarket Opera Company to produce the first ever recording of Joseph Boulogne's opera, The Anonymous Lover. Said the label's founder, Jim Ginsberg, quote, Sadi is excited to create the definitive recording of this opera, one we hope will serve as a reference for opera companies around the world as they stage their own future productions. Teatro Reggio di Parma has been given 650,000 euros by the Italian Ministry for Culture for eco-friendly upgrades to the theater, focusing especially on heating efficiency and keeping energy loss to a minimum. The two-century-old theater will be upgraded over the course of the next several years. In more Italian news to make American opera companies jealous, Opera di Roma has ended its fiscal year with a surplus for the eighth year in a row, with both ticket sales and core revenues having increased. Viva Italia! In trade news, the Royal Opera House has appointed a new chair to its board of directors, Sir Lloyd Dorfman. Dorfman is known for slashing ticket prices for younger theater attendees in his prior position at the National Theater. Zempo Oper Dresden is set to open its 2022-23 season in September with the premiere of Chasing Waterfalls, a multimedia program centered around and partially composed by artificial intelligence. The work will feature a computer-generated artificial intelligence algorithm in a number of roles, which will use the samplings of Norwegian soprano Er Inderhaug to supplement the singers with its own voice in real time. OBS listeners, did you know that the two-minute drill was written by AI? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> On the disabled list, Bayerische Staatsoper has announced that baritone Arto Ruczynski has withdrawn from upcoming performances of Verdi's Macbeth to be replaced by Craig Kalkoff. The other big B of German opera, the Bayreuth Festival, also announced a cast change. John Lundgren will no longer be singing the role of the Dutchman due to personal problems and will be replaced by Thomas J. Meyer. Flying Dutchman opens in August. You're a big B, Weston. <laughs> Tough break for Berlin to get left out of that crew. But in other news, red cards are back. The Bayerische Staatsoper has canceled multiple performances of Penderecki's The Devils of Loudon due to a number of positive COVID cases in the crew that rendered the opera unperformable, as though that was the only reason it would be determined <laughs> as such. And as we predicted, Jonas Kaufmann has canceled all performances of Cavalleria Rusticana at Royal Opera House due to long COVID. But that's Weston's favorite opera, The Devils of Loudon, right? I you have know. All, you have all the recordings of it. <laughs> uh, all one of them. Exit stage right. English director Peter Brook has died at the age of 97. Brook was known for his often controversial experimental productions from a collaboration with Salvador Dali on a production of Zalame to a 90-minute reimagining of Carmen. Quote, The one truth is that theater is a living experience, Brook said in 2019. As long as it's alive, it's alive. We have a responsibility to not let the flame go out. Famous for his interpretations of the cantatas and passions of Johann Sebastian Bach, Austrian tenor Kurt Equilutz has died at the age of 93. A member of the Vienna State Opera for 26 years, Equilutz participated in Harnencore's recording project of the complete vocal works of Bach on period instruments. Although a Baroque specialist, he had a wide-ranging repertoire from Haydn to Schoenberg via Mozart, Rossini, and even Verdi. 
American mezzo Sheila Nadler has died at the age of 82. A native New Yorker, Nadler joined the Manhattan School of Music in 1968 and was a member of the Maria Callas Masterclasses at Juilliard. She went on to have a notable international career and premiered the role of Marilyn Klinghoffer in John Adams's Death of Klinghoffer in 1991. And on this day, July 11th, in 1786, it was the first performance in Vienna of Karl Ditters von Dittersdorf's opera Doktor und Apotheker. Uh, Bohemian tenor Joseph Tichatschek was born in 1807. He was the uh, originator of the title roles of both Wagner's Rienzi and Tannhäuser. In 1925, it was the birth of both American soprano Madewilda Dobbs in Atlanta and Swedish tenor Nikolai Gedda in Stockholm. And happy birthday to British bass Alistair Miles, who was born in Middlesex in 1961. And that's your two-minute drill. That was Magische Töne from Carl Goldmark's opera, The Queen of Saba. That is an aria that I heard for the first time sung by uh, Nicolai Geta from one of those uh, aria recital discs that nobody makes anymore. And uh, that was so inspiring to me as a young singer, just thinking that, oh, you can sound like a lady but still be a man. <laughs> he is one of my absolute favorite voices of all time. Like the ease with which he sang so much different, so many different types of repertoire, like ahead of his time for tenors. Yeah. Absolutely. And now we, now we have tenors who, you know, can specialize in that type of music. Not that anybody's doing the queen of Saba, you know, but um, you can imagine, you can imagine like a Larry Brownlee. You it, know, it goes that Carmen Laboem, queen of Saba. <laughs> <laughs> the postion for l'enjouement. <laughs> Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get a free OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Check us out. Make sure you're subscribed. Let's get into the two-minute drill here. Obviously, I think the big story, the one that's been sort of blowing up the internet, was the uh, kerfuffle? Uh homophobia alcoholism of renee papa this is kind of a weird story is there is there anyone who wants to jump in with a hot take on this one well i'll just say that renee papa's alcoholism is well known yes and uh i didn't know that alcoholism causes you to become a bigot (laughs) maybe he's just you know how some people are like mean drunks he's uh, a homophobic (laughs) drunk yeah Yeah, it's it's very weird. The uh, I I did see a screenshot of the uh, initial comments, and they they did read as um, homophobic uh, and saying that he would he wouldn't uh, perform at the Met again because they had to participate in this Pride Parade. Um, oh, he in, wouldn't want to come back to right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. In fairness, there was a little bit of language barrier. The grammar wasn't very good, and he was obviously probably drunk at the time too. And it's possible so, he was trying to be transphobic and not homophobic. Yeah, so we really true. shouldn't be putting him in a box. That could be on us. Maybe we he's just... need to be intersectional bigotry or no bigotry at all. Maybe he's fighting the the moral panics of today rather than the moral <laughs> than the 
moral panics of 20 years ago. Like, let's give uh, him the benefit of the, of the doubt. Yeah the, yeah, the initial post is very hard to parse, but yeah. very, but clearly negative and yes. quite hateful. In in his apology, uh, he did say that uh, he said he, he claimed or the, whoever wrote it for him. Uh, claimed that uh, he was trying to make uh, uh, express displeasure at the performative activism of uh, the Met participating in a pride parade, which, just like you know... East Germany, just to, <laughs> just like all the East... in East Germany, all the opera houses were required to participate in the local pride parades. Right. Everyone which is like, knows this. It's not something to like get that mad about anyway, but it, it but then it goes right into the alcoholism bit after that, so it kind of feels like he's giving an apology and trying to excuse it at the same time, but it's also there's enough plausible deniability so you don't really know what the intention was. I feel uh, like I believe- I feel like we are we are the generation or I am the generation at least that like first learned about like publicists through the right. show Entourage and I'm sort of I imagining about them from the parent trap but okay <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of imagining it as like you know if Renee Papa was like a big star who had like a full-time publicist like this is the the episode where he or she is like okay how are we going to fix this? And okay, well, we have one last card to to pull out here. It's we're going to come public with your alcoholism I mean, like, <laughs> and and totalitarianism, which I feel like isn't getting enough airtime in in dissecting this apology. Yeah, it it's it, it's very weird. He did say he'd be pulling back for a while from performing and stuff and sorting things out. And if this was like an honest, like you know, uh, I'm going to go to a couple gay bars. I'm going to go to one of those drag queens read. <laughs> children's books story time and you know? really do some soul searching i mean I, I i mean i was very disappointed um when i read the comments because i i do like uh papa as a performer and also what a bold thing to criticize to to be a little a, a little bigoted you know at the company that literally just swinging. put on <laughs> boris gudinov for you you know what i mean uh, it's it's very weird. I I hope it was uh, a result of. I mean, I, it's kind of weird to say this, but I hope it was a result of alcoholism and not deep seated bigotry. But only time will tell. And if you know these kinds of things are any indication, time will tell if the bigotry is deeply deeply held. So yeah, we'll see what happens there. Well, the um, Met Chorus in Berlin were not having it. They no. both released statements pretty amazing, pretty immediately. Yes, saying nope, we're not, we're not dealing with this. And it, yeah, one good thing came out of it is that there are institutions now on the side of people who historically have not really had institutions on their yeah. side. But I think do we that's do we know pretty... if if he has lost a contract due to this yet? Uh, I think he said he would be stepping away, uh, okay. but I don't know what that means. I don't know if he had anything actually lined up or not, or if he or if he's cutting it off. I wouldn't be surprised if if people if we hear about it being cut off, but I haven't heard of anyone. It's, it's too him bad. Off. It's too bad. This interview probably with uh, Peter Gill probably happened before Renee Papa uh, made his own mm-hmm. comments, or, or we would have been asked to make a comment on it. <laughs> this is kind of a br- like like this is a long long interview and has some like really strong stances from Peter Gelb. Like there are many times I was like, whoa, wow, look at you go, Peter, <laughs> you know, which is not something I say very much in regards to Peter Gelb. Uh, no, who, very few do. <laughs> I think he, I think he, uh, there was a lot of criticism of, um, 
of Russia in this interview. That was sort of the the main subject that kept coming up. Um, he also he also did uh, 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 bash Russia's anti LGBT laws that are currently in place and trying to become more stringent. Um, and uh, it's uh, it really is. Uh, I, I think it, there was a lot of important statements that came out. You know, maybe at the time that Rene Papa, <laughs> you know, needed to hear them. But um, uh, I, I want to read a couple, a little bit of the quote here, if I can scroll down to the part I'm thinking of. Um, uh, here, here's a quote. Uh, when Putin cr- criminalized homosexuality 10 years ago, he did not implement this law himself. The Bolshoi continued to perform Nureyev ballets and do all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying it's right in any way. I'm just saying that there's a difference between working with ins- institutions in a country with morals uh, that are questionable and working with institutions in a country trying to wipe out a people in regards to uh, Ukraine and the uh, LGBT community in Russia. And certainly I think that that is the justification that Peter Gelb is sticking by, particularly in regards to Anna Netrebko, because I feel like a lot of companies are starting to be like, ah, oh, Anna can come back in. She's um... She just today was posting uh, clips of herself singing Aida in blackface again. Oh, God, was she really? <laughs> Over in Europe. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. Well, I-, I, think it's, I think it's very important to have this stance on Netrebko specifically, because uh, no one, professionally speaking, is closer to Anand Trepko than Peter Gelb. And he made the point in the interview that um, she might have apologized publicly and said, you know, that she doesn't support the war or the LGBTQ, uh, anti-LGBTQ laws in Russia. But when it comes right down to it, he knows her and knows how close she really is. Um, to Putin. I think that's something that we've seen in the past. And once you add that to the, you know, the blackface, <laughs> I think it, it really is time to really let let Anna Netrebko go. And I, w- I wish some of these companies in Europe weren't. At this point, it really feels like she's doing her. it on purpose. It really, really does. Just to stick her thumb in the eye of people who are saying, maybe don't do this. Yeah, you can only put your, your foot in your mouth so many times before you you can't claim that you don't like the taste. You know what I mean? Um, and it's it's one of those things that, you know, I, I, I'm just so over on a trip go. And Peter Gelb is too. And it's gl- I'm glad to see him kind of catch up with the rest of us. <laughs> In better news, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, Sidi's uh, Ballon recording. Uh, Oliver, you were at the performance of the... Uh, uh, Haymarket Opera. Yeah, um, it was a really charming opera. Uh, It is, it is a trifle. It is, but it's delightful. But it is not very substantial. Yeah, Uh, and Nicole Cabell sounded like a million bucks. And I went to the dress rehearsal, and like the general manager came on and said, you know, Nicole's going to mark tonight because she's saving her voice performance, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, darn it, you know? And if that's what she sounds like when she's marking, it's like, yes, mark <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <You know? clears throat> but my one thing that I want to say about uh, La Mont Anonymine is that I, and I, I poop you not when I say that it has as much dialogue as it has music it's equal parts dialogue and music Mm. so it's really it's really a play with songs Mm. and um this can be very challenging for the audience who doesn't speak french and um if i 
had my way about it, I would advise companies to try to find an English or create an English language mm. um, uh, script, like a dialogue, so that right, right. Um, we can follow along. <laughs> um, but, you know, the music is great and the performances are great. And, yeah, uh, Nicole Cabell is is amazing. So I'm looking forward to being able to en- enjoy that performance again when City yeah. records it. And I'm very excited because it's going to be a period instrument uh, ensemble as well, which is, yeah. I think, very important for this era particularly. And, and it sounds like they've already made the recording that they that they had some sessions after the performances to yeah. get this to get that cast so it's just getting it cut yeah and putting it out there i'm i'm gonna get it because as we all know from from last time i was not able to get <laughs> get into the performance because i waited too long to get a ticket in that tiny theater which is really really tragic uh, 162 tra- seats Oh, oh yeah. I thought not, I thought you enough. meant that no one over six four was allowed in the theater. Yeah, well, yeah, that that was that was also a problem. There was a, uh, I mean, we we made a lot of progress on certain social issues, but the anti-tall uh, person uh, lobby is still strong, <laughs> unfortunately, in the arts. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the all of these cancellations. Uh, we almost brought back red cards officially, just because of um, what's going on, especially uh, in Europe right now. Uh, and also the current variants uh, going around, uh, you know, this is everywhere, <laughs> everywhere, uh, I, I, even here in Chicago, you know, I believe it's uh, considered high risk to be uh, out, out anywhere. And, you know, life is kind of proceeding more or less as as normal without uh, much cancellations. So it's uh, it's a, a new era we're living in, living with covid uh, instead of, um, you know, trying to avoid it. For yeah, better Yo- and or Jonas, worse. <laughs> Jonas Kaufman has certainly gone back to living in the way that he was before the pandemic. <laughs> Just canceling yeah, left and right. <laughs> At least I, I we have say, some consistency. I, I hope he gets a speedy recovery. Uh, I I want him to feel uh, feel better so that you know one day he will actually appear in a scheduled performance, and we don't have to replace him with an AI algorithm like uh, Semperopa Dresden is clearly trying to do. Um, this is actually a really neat project to me. I mean, um, obviously, whenever something like this happens, I feel like it's very easy to be like, oh, this is how the Terminators happen. But I, would just, I was just thinking, like, you know, if Terminators <laughs> do happen, at least they should be able to sing a little bit. Um, so uh, to really capture the operatic nature of the robo apocalypse which is uh really i think what we all want in an apocalypse um and uh i i think that it's uh it's always nice to see opera adopting uh technologies that i i feel like you know obviously a few years ago didn't exist but i feel like in my youth growing up um not too too long ago uh compared to say oliver um, I think there was uh, a great deal of technophobia in the opera world. Um, you know, n- you wouldn't hear a lot of electronic instruments, except in the most avant-garde productions in Europe. You wouldn't hear uh, any amplification unless it was like absolutely necessary. And there wasn't really much in the way of artistic amplification. Uh, and I think that it's a really encouraging sign to see opera trying to like be more on the cutting edge instead of lagging behind a lot of the other arts. Um Though uh, I, I'm only saying that so that the robot overlords don't kill me in the <laughs> robo apocalypse. But in the in the movie that they will eventually make about uh, the uh, battle between humans and robots uh, that occurred <laughs> in the early 21st century, 
uh, I think it'll be a really lyrical moment when they have like that cutaway to the first AI opera and they're in the libretto was some clue as to what was going to happen. Uh, you know? Yeah. VC Dark. I mean, we we can all hope that the words of uh, the immortal R&B girl group TLC don't prove to be p- prophetic when they sang, don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> All right, we have to end the show now. Goodbye. (laughs) Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, good call, bad call. We know everyone's uh, bad call is the robo-apocalypse, but uh, if you have anything more specific, Oliver Camacho, what do you got? I've got a good call. Um, There is a beautiful, beautiful, very long-to-read article uh, that's in the New York Times Magazine from this past Sunday. Uh, it is called, oh, I closed it. Let me reopen it again. You, I have a subscription so I can actually tell you the title of this. Is the, fu- is the Future of American Opera Unfolding in Detroit? A profile of the dreamy Yuval Sharon, who is the artistic director of what is now called Detroit Opera. We have to get him on the show. Uh, but it's a big article. And it if you do the option where you have the... Um, audio recording by autumn read it to you it's a 31 minute listen (laughs) so next time you have a half hour to kill uh go ahead and listen to uh the detroit opera story uh from the new york times matt cummings so i know that the theme of tonight is kind of publicist kind of publicist but i just have to say uh that there was a statement released in like in regards to the new album by freddie di tomazzo that just made me want to throw my computer across the room where they were they were nothing against him he's a wonderful singer everything i've heard from the album so far is great but if your publicity team is is hyping you up with your new album that is getting new release algorithm bumps on spotify by saying that it's outstripping that your performance of Nessun Dorma is outstripping the recording that Luciano Pavarotti made 35 <laughs> years ago of the same aria just like on a random week because like that is not a useful metric for anyone. It does One not Pavarotti tell me streaming unit. <laughs> we cannot go down this road or we will never get up. Like we will never ever have new recordings again. It's so hard to get them as it is. <laughs> absolutely and then then the robots will win you know and we can't have that last up good call from me just at the close of my trip i managed to go to a sunday morning service at saint paul's cathedral with my mother and got super lucky that not only did we get to go to saint paul's and get to go there for church but also the choir and the London Sinfonia were performing Haydn's Nelson Mass. And of course, Admiral Nelson is buried in St. Paul's Cathedral. The acoustics alone are extraordinary. But to get to hear that piece of music within a religious setting that it was designed for in that space was simply overwhelming. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit that plus sign. 
Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is me, except I'm not doing video anymore, but I read what's on the page. For your co-hosts, George Cedarquist and Matt Cummings, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you attempt to survive the robo-apocalypse. We're back with an all-new show next week where you'll get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more unperformable Penderecki. Join us. <laughs>